So I have a, a, a group of friends that share a WhatsApp group. And just a couple of days before this retreat started, someone posted on the group a kind of inquiry. And she asked the question, what is your strongest parami? And what is the parami in most need of cultivation? And it was so interesting to hear people in the group responding with their their strong parami and a happy emoji and their their parami that they're cultivating and a kind of sad emoji. And it, I, there were kind of two insights that emerged from that. And one was that um, as a group, we had them all covered. And I thought that was so beautiful to to be part of a sangha where you know, if I need generosity, it's reflected from one person. If I need resolve, it's reflected from another person. And it just to me, sort of reinforced this idea about um, practice and community being so essential. And the other kind of insight was that when I checked into my own experience to see, you know, what is my strong parami and what is my one needing cultivation that I had my stock answer, you know, that I would probably give that might be my general tendency, but it was, it was different. It was changing, you know, I was unwell. So my energy was lagging and, um, began to see that, that, that the kind of the streams of practice, the ebbs and flow of practice that, different conditions call for different resourcing and different conditions kind of lead to how we're resourced. There's a kind of a freedom in that, you know, we call these perfections, but um, you know, there's the saying that practice makes perfect. And even the notion that these kinds of qualities of being or these kinds of ways of going through the world aren't just you know, sort of genetic and we get our allocation and that that we actually have um, agency and the ability to, to cultivate, to generate, to uh, come into these qualities more and more as our way of being, as a way of, uh, as a path to liberation. And that although there's a sense when you read the list that it starts with generosity and maybe equanimity as some sort of like fruition of the cultivation of all the paramis, they're really all quite interrelated. There's many interrelations. If we were to draw the schematic, the arrows would probably be pointing in all kinds of different directions. And so this talk is about the parami of equanimity, which is my favorite parami, if I'm allowed to have a favorite. Um, the word equanimity in English comes from the Latin roots equus, meaning equal, and uh, animus, meaning mind or soul, so it's the sense of the mind being in balance. 
often you'll hear terms like uh, unshakable mind. The mind is like solid and steady, like a mountain that is uh, unperturbed by all the activity. The mountain doesn't care that there are animals coming and going and seasons coming and going. The mountain just has a kind of steadiness of presence. <coughs> and it's also sometimes likened to a kind of softer image. It might be like a bamboo that sways so that it, it's able to bend rather than being brittle and breaking. It's sort of the, the thing that comes to my mind in that vein is the, maybe some of you had this toy as a child, the weeble. The weeble wobbles, but it doesn't fall down. <laughs> and so the uh, equanimity as a meditative state was described by the Buddha as being abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. It has this character, the abundance to me, it's the sort of evokes a kind of sense of spaciousness that the equanimous mind might have. And the exalted is a kind of warmth or a kind of caring that characterizes equanimity as being quite different from indifference, indifference, with a more, maybe a, a colder or a more aversive kind of state. So the mind is, is calm, uh, unagitated. Um, the state of equanimity is supported when there's a sense of well-being, a sense of relaxation, joy, I teach the mindfulness-based stress uh, uh, course, and uh, one of the things that the scientists talk about these days is that meditation promotes both stress resistance and stress resiliency. It's quite interesting, actually, because in the in the eight-week MBSR course, there are about 40 hours of meditation over the course of that period of time. And then they're able to measure specific changes in the brain that make us more resistant to stress. So it takes a kind of a bigger event to take us off our center into some kind of stress response and improved stress resiliency, meaning that when we do get knocked off into some sort of stress response that we are much more quickly able to recalibrate. I think this is another way of looking at equanimity, the, the imperturbability, but also the flexibility to bounce back. It's also related to and supported by uh, the mind being concentrated. And some of you have reported this experience of the mind feeling steady and unagitated and malleable and able to stay with the object of meditation. And this is one of the preconditions to equanimity. 
One thing that I find um, I really like about equanimity is that in some ways I think equanimity, the idea of equanimity is what attracted me to the practice, that I became more serious about my practice in a time where I didn't have a lot of equanimity. I was under a lot of stress and uh, felt very much in conflict with my environment. And while there's this sense that equanimity is a fruition or a culmination of the path, it's actually um, often one of the first kinds of fruits of practice. You know, in working with beginners, quite often the first kind of benefit they report to uh, a daily meditation practice is the sense of being, you know, less disturbed by the difficulties of daily life, more at ease, more unperturbable. So what I thought might be interesting to do would be to just explore how each of the paramis kind of relates to or supports or or the absence of the parami impedes this steadiness of mind, this unperturbability. Remembering that uh, Gill's words, that uh, what makes it a parami is this connection with the that the orientation is towards liberation and that the uh, it includes compassion. And when we talk about compassion in this context, we're really talking about um, care for others. So dana, generosity, beautiful parami, this entire place exists solely on the basis of this quality of generosity, our ability to do this. And generosity is this kind of movement into compassion when we give freely of our resources, when we give freely of our time, we give freely of our attention. This is a manifestation of our care for others. It's also a Dana or generosity has this quality. It's very uh, closely connected to letting go because whatever we're sharing with others, we're not gripping so tightly or trying to protect or hoard in some way. And there's a Zen story of a um, student asking the teacher, how does one work? in service of the liberation of others. And the teacher says, what others? Focus on your own liberation. And the student says, how does one focus on one's own liberation? And the teacher says, serve others. <laughs> and I love that notion that, that um, in some sense, our own awakening, our own liberation is inextricably intertwined with the liberation of others. And when we're able to practice generosity, when we're able to be generous, we're stepping into that framework. This 
There's also maybe an even deeper sense of what does it mean to be me and an other or I and other. So sila, integrity, um, very difficult to have a steady, relaxed, calm, joyful mind when um, you have to keep track of all the lies you've been telling and worry about getting discovered for the other misdeeds you've done. The Buddha spoke of something um, he called the bliss of blamelessness, that when we act in accordance with the precepts and practice good moral conduct, um, it's a relief. Like we can relax knowing that, you know, we're not culpable, that we have nothing to hide, nothing to protect, that we can just show up unguarded. the uh, expression of uh, equanimity, you know, that includes without hostility and without ill will. And there is some thread of hostility or ill will or disregard for the welfare of others when we don't uh, behave in an ethical framework. So that behavior is inconsistent with the quality of equanimity. Oh, nikama, renunciation, letting go. Every time we sit in our meditation practice, there's a kind of ongoing renunciation. We're renouncing a certain kind of engagement in the world for that period of time, stepping into a, a aspirationally simpler way of being where things are more stripped down. We Maybe we can temporarily set aside our concerns and our problems and just step into this simple presence of being. And the cultivation of the mind, the ability to cultivate a calm state of mind, to relax this, the nervous system on that sort of uh, biological level uh, it's very supportive of equanimity. There's also a kind of practice I've been thinking about or engaging with is that uh, based on the notion that your mind reflects how you use it. So if our habit of mind is to uh, jump from topic to topic and keep track of a lot of things and uh, engage in ways that are agitating, then when we stop and we look into our mind state, it will reflect that activity. 
It's a part of cultivating a calm, peaceful sense of presence is to let go of the things that don't promote that sense of well-being and calm, to renounce the things that aren't serving us. I really enjoy movies. I was sharing this with one of the practice meetings and um, for some reason the movies that I really enjoy are very stimulating and uh, agitating and exciting and enthralling and um, it's become a kind of renunciation for me at least during you know on school nights or in the evenings to let go of something that on one level I really enjoy but in the larger picture of things, it just doesn't serve me because it agitates me and I don't sleep well. And, um, an interesting exercise for all of us to look at all the things that in our life that make it more complicated. There's this phenomenon going on with, uh, they're calling it condoizing. Um, this Japanese woman, Marie Kondo, has this beautiful kind of meditative practice for um, decluttering your home. And um, one of the things that I love that she says is that um, each object that you own, you can hold it and feel into it. And if it's bringing you joy, then you can keep it. And if it's not bringing you joy, you can thank it and recycle it. And I think that would be a wonderful practice to do with kind of all aspects of our life. You know, is this serving us? Is this leading to joy? Is this leading to well-being? Or is this something that is leading to suffering for ourselves or others? And then in the broader sense of, you know, liberation, the letting go is the, the practice is letting go. Panya, discernment, clear seeing, appropriate response. Uh, again, this idea of um, uh, when wisdom arises, it's like we just know what leads to well-being and we know what leads to suffering, that we can see more and more our patterns of what is unskillful and what is skillful and almost not even in a cognitive way. We just know that when wisdom has arisen, the, the system knows. It's as if you were to pick up a very hot uh, skillet. You, know, you would instantly know that we wouldn't even think about it. You would just drop it because it's painful and it's burning you and feels to me like the, the arising of wisdom is sometimes like that, that we can just see, we can see our suffering more clearly. We can see the causes of suffering. And that deep seeing, that deep understanding is a powerful catalyst to being able to let go. So, 
I talked already about uh, energy and patience. I thought I would talk about them together. Um, starting with a contemplation. How many meditators does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> the answer is that the light bulb never gets changed. There's just a lot of noting darkness, 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 <laughs> darkness. Uh, and I love this joke because I think it does sort of point to this dance that we're in, on the one hand cultivating you know, equanimity has in it this uh, kind of uh, impartiality of mind, not chasing what's pleasant or bristling at what's unpleasant. And so a big part of our practice is how do we develop this sort of ease regardless of circumstances, especially the circumstances that we can't control. sort of the patience side of the equation. <clears throat> and yet, I keep using this word, I really like this word, we have some agency in our practice to uh, use our energy to transform. And not only in our meditative practice, but in the world, like someone needs to change the light bulb. And in that, also so helpful to look at how we're using our energy. Mm -hmm. As I was reflecting in the earlier talk, the, the in the story I told, the toad spent an awful lot of energy on his garden, uh, but it wasn't the energy that uh, leads to flowering of plants. And that brings us to such a truths. A part of this is uh, telling the truths. And that's also captured in the second paramisila. And another part of this is how we learn to see the truth, the liberative power of seeing the truth of how things are. That part and parcel of this incarnation as a human being is some measure of unsatisfactoriness, suffering, that we are subject to old age sickness and death, that we will be separated from everything that we hold dearly. We go through the world in some sort of denial of these basic facts. Uh, it really changes how we organize our lives, how we set our priorities, what's important to us. The other part of seeing the truth of how things are is the 
ever-changing nature of phenomena that everything we perceive arises, has some life, and passes away. And the equanimous mind is at ease with the arisings and passings, not clinging to what we love and not pushing away what we don't. And then the third classical liberative truth is the stepping into the realization that uh, we may not be who we think we are. In Gill's story of the troll, you know, so many layers that we put on this uh, identity that we hold. And that there is some universality in this human experience that we all experience. Uh, grief and loss and pain and and also joy and well-being and happiness and uh, a way in which those phenomena are not so personal. Like when we are in struggle, we often take it very personally, but some sense that things are unfolding in accordance with natural laws, the laws of cause and effect and conditions and um, really seeing and understanding this truth frees us from a kind of confusion or delusion that is not conducive to a mind that is steady and undisturbed. So resolve, for me this is a question of like, what are we resolved to? I have some amount of resolution to watch the last season of Game of Thrones. Uh, I've been practicing some renunciation on that front. But what are the things that we are, you know, sort of trained to uh, resolve to get or to do in our culture, money, society, status, power, material things? <clears throat> and what are the other kinds of resolutions or resolves that we can have that are more pointing to this uh, flavor of liberation. And in, in lockstep with the notion that it's a parami because it's liberative and it involves care for others, I'd like to share, you, share with you one of my favorite resolves, a little, little bit of it from Shantideva. May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. 
May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. be quite useful to clarify your values and then make a vow and you know I love the tradition of the bodhisattva vows Uh, the vows are kind of you know grand impossible things like sentient beings are numberless I vow to liberate them all greed hate delusion are endless I vow to overcome them um there's something to me quite beautiful about the impossibility of that. Like it's not the vow that you take with some sense that you're going to accomplish the end goal, but more a vow you take as a kind of to clarify your intentions of how you want to go through the world that we may not be able to save to, uh, you know, abandon greed, hatred, and delusion, but every step we take in that direction is a step towards liberation. Metta, loving kindness, also as a meditative state described as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility or without ill will. I've heard metta described as a gentle rain that falls on everyone evenly. Or like the sun shining, that the sun shines equally on all of us. It doesn't preference one being over another. This quality of metta that is uh, impartial, doesn't have preferences, is very related to the equanimous mind that has also dropped preferences. There's uh, another quote I really like. This is two Mahayana quotes. This is um, the third Zen ancestor. The great way is not difficult for those who hold no preferences. When neither love nor hate arises, all is clear and undisguised. The way is perfect as vast space is perfect, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, there is no objection to anything in the world and you will walk freely and undisturbed. So one of the ways that I have found very helpful to practice with the paramis, I think this works in the meditative context and in a daily life context, is that when I encounter a moment of contraction or resistance or some activation or some moment of suffering, that sometimes I'll 
have this gentle inquiry, like what quality of being would be supportive for this moment? And, you know, if you have this list memorized, there's 10 ready-made qualities that you can just sense into. What would be supportive in this moment? Is this a moment that would call for some generosity? Is this a moment that would call for me being really clear about my values or And even in this practice, you know, I, I begin to see my patterns. I begin to see where more work is needed, where more efforts can be spent, where I can have more resolve and energy even about cultivating any other of the paramis. I think that feels pretty complete, so we'll sit for the rest of the time. 